This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to the Out of the Blue podcast, in which we discuss an important article in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. I'm Nitin Seem, and I'll be moderating a discussion of the article, A Multicenter Randomized Controlled Trial of Zephyr Endobronchial Valve Treatment in Heterogeneous Emphysema, Liberate, with lead author, Dr. Jerry Kreiner, as well as the author of the accompanying editorial, Dr. Gaetan Desli. Thank you both for joining me. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you both to introduce yourself and report any relevant disclosures. Let's start with Dr. Kreiner. Uh, my name is uh, Gerard Kreiner. I'm professor and chair of Department of Thoracic Medicine and, Sur- and Surgery at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia. My financial disclosures is that I was a principal investigator at Liberate and would receive grant funding from Pulmonics, but I have no financial interest in the outcome of the study or trial. Well, thank you. And then Dr. Desley? My name is uh, Gaetan Desley. I'm professor of pulmonary medicine at the University of Reims in France. Um, I've been involved as a principal investigator in uh, a study uh, assessing lung volume reduction coil treatment uh, sponsored by BTG Pneumorix, but I have no conflict of interest uh, on uh, the field of uh, valve treatment. Okay, great. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, and we've uh, let's start with our, our discussion about the, the current article by Dr. Kreiner's group. But before we get into the details of the article, I'd like to ask Dr. Desley to talk about the, the field more generally. So there are several approaches to lung volume reduction, and, and I'd, I'd like to start by asking you to, to explain to our listeners how these techniques can help patients with emphysema. So endobronchial lung volume reduction is uh, definitely a, a very growing field in, in the last years with uh, many randomized studies uh, published. In fact, uh, three different techniques uh, have been assessed. Uh, the aim of this technique is definitely to reduce uh, hyperinflation. And I would say that the three main uh, techniques that uh, have been uh, developed and, and assessed in uh, randomized control studies are the valves that we will talk uh, about today, but also coil treatment and uh, thermal vapor ablation. And in, uh, for these three different techniques in a very uh, highly selected patients, uh, these three techniques demonstrated uh, positive results uh, in terms of uh, efficacy in uh, randomized control studies. Well, thank you for, for that description, and, and certainly these are less, uh, much less invasive and with less morbidity and mortality than, than lung volume reduction surgery. Um, and I wanted to, to talk uh, a little bit more about endobronchial valves specifically, as you just alluded to. Um, so based on the available data from the studies that have come out to date, which patients with emphysema uh, seem to benefit most from valve placement? So in, in, in valves, uh, definitely there are two, uh, uh, two things that are very uh, important. The first thing is just to make sure that uh, the patient does not have any uh, 
collateral ventilation. So definitely the absence of collateral ventilation matters. And now we have tools to uh, evaluate that. And uh, endobronchial tools have been developed, but also uh, CT scan uh, tools have been developed to, uh, uh, to be able to, to assess this collateral ventilation. And so many studies have uh, clearly shown that uh, if you treat patient with collateral ventilation, you don't have any uh, efficacy. The second thing to consider is the placement of the, of the valves, and uh, definitely in this field, they, they, we, we had improvement uh, in the devices and in the way we, we have been able to play the valves to make sure that we obtain the effect that we want to obtain we, with the valves. So I, I'd like to follow up on that first the point about the absence of collateral ventilation, and I'd open this up to Dr. Desley, uh, Desley, and then if Dr. Kreiner wants to chime in, he, he can do so as well. But could you explain to our listeners who may not be familiar with that concept what, what is meant by the absence of collateral ventilation uh, in terms of talking about uh, identifying appropriate patients for endobronchial valve uh, treatment? Um, maybe Dr. Kreiner could maybe... Yes, uh... Thanks, Gaetan. For the Liberate study, we used a flow probe uh, placed through the bronchoscope to show at the end of the flow probe with balloon occlusion of the targeted lobe for treatment that there was no evidence of any airflow after a period of time, usually about four minutes, um, through the distal pl- uh, flow probe that occluded lobe. But other measures that have been used by other studies is also looking for fissure integrity or fissure completeness by HRCT. And studies have shown that uh, more than 90% of fissure completeness usually identifies a patient group that would benefit from endobronchial valve treatment and is a surrogate for uh, lack of collateral ventilation across that lobe. Okay, well, well, thank you for clarifying that. I think that that is an important concept because, as Dr. Desley mentioned, that the patients who who have a collateral ventilation tend not to to uh, get benefit from from valve placement um, in the prior studies. So let's talk about that. Uh, the, your study, Dr. Kreiner, could you describe uh, some of the specifics, such as which patients with uh, emphysema were eligible? I know you have sort of screening inclusions, and then you have uh, inclusions going forward. So what type of patients were excluded, and what was the primary outcome you measured? So the the Liberate study was a large international multi-center trial to look at the effectiveness and safety of endobronchial valve treatment in patients that were determined, as we just talked about, with little to no collateral ventilation. And the difference of this study, the patients were followed out to 12 months, which lets us look at uh, treatment response, but the durability of that, and look at immediate as well as long-term complications with this type of therapy. Um, The patients that were selected were patients that were already optimized by medical treatment with medications, bronchodilators, supplemental oxygen, about a quarter of patients, pulmonary rehabilitation, and patients uh, could not have asthma as their major disease or current disease thought by the principal investigator. So these were patients that were severely obstructed, hyperinflated uh, with an RV greater than 175% are predicted, and then determined, as we also just previously talked about, bronchoscopically, to have 
uh, no evidence of collateral ventilation by using a charted system, which is a uh, balloon occlusion flow probe device that's placed into the targeted lobe for treatment right before uh, patients were. Um, if patients by the flow probe showed that they had absence of collateral ventilation, they were included in the study. If by the flow probe they showed that they had collateral ventilation positive status, they were excluded from the study. Oh, well, thank you for, for clarifying that. And and you mentioned 12-month follow-up, um, which was um, a longer degree of follow-up than, than prior studies. And so what was the primary uh, study outcome you were measuring? Yeah, the primary study uh, outcome was at 12 months was the difference between um, the endobronchial valve treatment standard of care subjects with a post-bronchodilator FEV1 improvement of 15% or greater. So it was a responder analysis for the primary outcome uh, in FEV1. The secondary endpoints that were measured were the absolute change in, in FEV1, the six-minute walk distance, as well as the SGRQ scores. Thanks for, for providing that, that that detail. And, you know, I, I think it is important to, to point out to our listeners, you know, I take care of COPD patients in clinic, and those with hyperinflation, those uh, who tend to, you know, we try a variety of, um, you know, inhaled medications with limited success in this group of patients. So, you know, certainly if they're if endobronchial valves are a successful therapy, uh, that would be something that um, would certainly be a value add in terms of uh, their quality of life. Um, and obviously, the primary endpoint being if we can see an improvement in the FEV1. So let's ask Dr. Kreiner now about some more of the details of, of the study. Um, could you tell us uh, how patients were treated in the endobronchial valve group? There's some details of um, of your protocol compared to the standard of care group. Yes, yeah, so the patients that uh, were enrolled into the study, both arms received uh, the usual care by uh, accepted guidelines. The goal guidelines were used for the uh, usual care in both groups. In the patient group that received endobronchial valve treatment at the time where they were assessed bronchoscopically for collateral ventilation status, those were randomized to treatment. It was a two-to-one uh, treated versus control uh, scheme for the study. They received endobronchial valves in segmental or subsegmental location with the purpose of total lobar exclusion. So that was the point of the study. Pick people with collateral ventilation negative status and do complete lobar occlusion. On average, that took about four endobronchial valves across the study overall to achieve that. Once that was achieved, patients were maintained in the hospital for five days post-treatment to observe for complications, notably uh, development of a pneumothorax, and uh, the patients were then reassessed at 45 days with HRCT. If they had less than complete lower occlusion, they were able to have a valve adjustment uh, at that time, and then patients were followed out at regular intervals uh, in both groups out to a period of one year. Just to follow up on one uh, part of that, it is a it is a complex study um, for our listeners. Uh, in terms of the, how did uh, the investigators decide on the target lobe for individual patients? So the patients uh, were chosen based on the amount of emphysematous destruction 
and the degree of heterogeneity on the same side as the targeted lobe, the non-treated lobe had a greater than 15% difference in heterogeneity. So it was three features that were used to select the lobe of treatment and the patient acceptance into the trial. Two HRCT parameters, they had to have more than 50% of emphysematous destruction using a 9-10 ounce-fold unit HRCT analysis. They had to have a degree of heterogeneity between that targeted lobe and the ipsilateral non-targeted lobe of a 15% difference. Uh, in the degree of emphysematous destruction. And then the third was the physiologically determined status of collateral ventilation negative bronchoscopically by using the flow probe at uh, the time right before randomization to determine study eligibility. Thank you for for explaining those details. It is, as I said, uh, uh, somewhat complex, and I appreciate you simplifying it uh, for our listeners. Uh, And now I think uh, it's time for us to ask you for what did you find in terms of your primary endpoint and your secondary endpoints? So from the primary endpoint, the um, responder analysis of a the percentage of the group uh, treated versus standard of care that had a more than 15% uh, change in FEV1 at one year post-randomization to study arm, we found that about uh, 47.7% of patients in the EBV or endobronchial valve treated arm met that parameter compared to about uh, 16% of patients in the standard of care arm. So almost a threefold greater number of patients in the EBV-treated arm had an improvement in FEV1 greater than 15%. When we looked at the secondary outcomes, the endobronchial valve-treated group had, on average, at one year, an absolute increase in FEV1 of uh, 106 mLs, difference in improved six-minute walk distance by 39.3 meters, and a improvement in SGRQ with a reduction in score. A reduction is an improvement by uh, 7.05 points. So the primary as well as all the secondary endpoints were met uh, in the study, not only met statistically, but beyond the minimal important clinical difference for each of these parameters. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. So um, uh, obviously, it's uh, exciting to see the statistically significant improvements in FEV1 and, and all the quality of life measured, but obviously there's a difference between uh, statistical significance and, and clinical significance, and you, you did do that analysis, and, and as you mentioned, the, they, um, uh, they, they may work clinically based on a clinically significant threshold. They met those um, numbers as well. Um, so I'd like uh, doc, to open this up to Dr. Des Lee. I'd ask you, what are your impressions of this study? Yes, to me, they, this is a, a very uh, important study uh, in the field, and I think that the, the, the main interest of, of uh, this study are of the, the 12-month uh, time point for the primary endpoint. Uh, it has to be pointed out that uh, uh, previous, uh, previous randomized studies uh, had uh, uh, endpoint primary endpoint at three or six months. I think it's very important to to have this more long term uh, measurement. The second point is the relatively large number of subjects uh, included in this study, uh, 190 uh, patients uh, in a multi-center design uh, with uh, 24 sites uh, included. I think it's important 
important to to have you know large studies, multi-center studies, really to uh, to, to to know what is the the safety and the efficacy of of uh, of, uh, of this endobronchial valve, and. The other point is the very careful investigation uh, by the author of the safety of uh, valves, uh, including, you know, uh, analysis of uh, secondary bronchoscopic procedures and uh, an analysis of the pneumothorax events. And the authors really assessed uh, that very rigorously uh, using an algorithm. And I think that's a very uh, important data uh, for, uh, for clinicians. And the other point I would like to mention is the outstanding follow-up uh, in this study with uh, around 90% of the patients uh, assessed uh, with the pulmonary function test after uh, 12 months, which is a, a very good result in, in a study at, at one year. And I would say that overall, the results are in line with the other results uh, uh, in uh, assessing valves uh, and selecting patients uh, based on the absence of uh, collateral ventilation. Um, it has been discussed just before the, the, the results based on FEV1 and quality of life are really clinically significant. What we could argue is that the sick minux walk test are, uh, is a a little bit uh, lower than what has been uh, uh, previously shown. But uh, if we compare to, for example, the Stelvio study, it has to be uh, said that it was a monocentric uh, study with uh, six-month uh, endpoints. So my opinion is that it's a very well-designed study, very good follow-up, very careful investigation of the safety, and that's a very important point. So to me, a very important uh, study uh, in this field. Thank you for, for, uh, for, for uh, clarifying that, then, Dr. Desley. And I, I think your, your points are, are certainly well taken. And, you know, 12-month follow-up is, is the, I think, thing that's certainly new, and, and as you were saying about maybe the six-minute walk distance over time, since this is longer follow-up, that... that uh, that difference uh, had had decreased over time, um, and the point the point uh, excuse me the point you mentioned about pneumothorax rate is very important. I wanted to ask Dr. Kreiner about that. Um, you know, the study showed improved lung function and exercise tolerance in patients who received the valves compared to standard of care. Approximately a quarter of the patients who receive valves develop pneumothorax, and this isn't surprising. This is the most common complication in in all endobronchial valve studies, but as Dr. Desley said, you did a very detailed analysis of this, and you studied these patients. You even, as you mentioned, observed them for five days in-house um, to watch. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that, you know, were these mostly early within one to two days of outplacement, or were there some that were delayed? How were these patients managed in general um, in terms of uh, just being observed versus needing pigtail or chest tube placement? And and what were their outcomes, both in the short term, post pneumothorax, and at three months? Yes, thanks for bringing that up. Um, as mentioned before, it is the most uh, common complication of any lung reduction procedure, and it's expected to be at this level, about 30% in patients that are chosen with um, 
uh, an intact fissure, whatever way you want to assess it, and low bore occlusion is the goal for maximum clinical benefit. What we found in our study was that uh, 82% of the pneumothoraces occurred within the first three days post-procedure. 85% of those required chest tube placement or received chest tube placement. About 15% had ex vacuo pneumothorax that there was a space in the pleural space, but there wasn't an active BPF associated with it and didn't require um, a tube to be placed to allow for uh, treatment of the accompanying BPF. Um, we had a protocol in place throughout the study, which we modified that in patients who had large volume collapse within the first 24 hours that they would get a CT scan done. Uh, that would allow us to pick up um, perhaps a pneumothorax that wouldn't be recognized on a portable chest X-ray. Um, we also put patients on 100% oxygen to, if there was a pneumothorax, to treat that. And we had close surveillance uh, with that protocol um, that we had in place. If patients did have a pneumothorax, if it persisted after uh, 72 hours, then we had a protocol in place to sequentially review, uh, remove valves to see if that would um, improve the pneumothorax and stop an air leak if it was present at time. And that seemed those protocol modifications allowed us to be able to handle this in um, all the cases. Uh, some patients had to have all valves removed. That was a minority of patients over time. But most of the pneumothoraces, as I said, 72 hours after treatment um, were able to be managed either conservatively with chest tube placement in most cases or chest tube with valve removal and all. And just to follow that up, you know, I think as Dr. Desley said, and you know, you got, you, your group had collected a tremendous amount of data, had an algorithmic approach to this, um, and in reviewing it, were there any predictors of patients who um, receive valves who would develop pneumothorax, particularly the group who, you know, the, the minority who had a delayed pneumothorax, and I wonder if that, that you learned anything from, from, from looking at that data? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, previous data suggested that those that had the greatest targeted um, lobe reduction were more likely to have a pneumothorax develop. In almost all cases, either with this technique or others, the pneumothorax uh, develops in the ipsilateral non-treated lobe, and it's thought to be related to expansion of the non-treated lobe on that side that causes a bronchopleural fistula to develop. Um, we looked at that. We didn't find that to be a factor in our case. We also looked at, did a separate analysis of looking at the ipsilateral non-treated lobe in terms of degree of emphysema, pleural adhesions, um, any kind of large uh, attenuation areas like a bulla or a bleb that would be there. We did a texture analysis. and We really couldn't define any single parameter that showed that uh, we could predict who would develop a pneumothorax. We also did an analysis to see if those who developed a pneumothorax did better or worse uh, than people that did not develop a pneumothorax, and we present that in a supplement to the paper, and we didn't really find any difference in outcomes in the group that developed a pneumothorax versus those who did, except a slight trend for those who did develop a pneumothorax to have a greater improvement in SGRQ and a greater improvement in six-minute walk distance, but the FEV1 change was, was identical. 
Well, that's really uh, interesting, and again, a very detailed analysis that's adding to the field um, um, as as this uh, clinicians are getting more uh, experience with this. So, Dr. Desley, I'd, li I'd like to follow up and, and ask you. You know, I think uh, there's a lot of excitement at these all these um, positive studies showing improvement uh, in these parameters in patients with endobronchial valves, and this one is this study is the longest follow-up up to 12 months. Uh, I would ask you to comment on any important uh, limitations uh, of this study. Uh, to me, there are not so many limitations, I would say, of this study. I think that the, the, what we need is, is probably uh, uh, to, to, to get a result from uh, even longer uh, follow-up studies just to, to know uh, what will, how, how will this patient will do at two or, or three years uh, and, and five years. So I, I definitely think that we need longer follow-up in this patient in terms of uh, efficacy and safety. The second thing that maybe we can say that uh, uh, the, the, the primary, primary outcome is, is different when, when you compare different uh, randomized co control studies. So um, some of the author, authors have chosen uh, FEV1, others uh, have chosen uh, six-minute walking test, uh, others have chosen uh, quality of life. So that, that one of the problems is that it is probably difficult to to really define what is a, a good responder and what is a, not a good responder. And I really think that quality of life matters. I mean, this patient, they, are, they have very poor quality of life. And uh, I think that uh, it, it is very, very important to, to consider uh, this uh, endpoint as an important uh, endpoint. And uh, it has been uh, uh, assessed in this study, but uh, I think when we we discuss should we do or should not we do this kind of treatment. I think, I think that uh, uh, the results uh, on, on quality of life are, are important to, to consider. The other point that uh, probably will, will be published later is the, uh, the data about, uh, about cost-effectiveness analysis. So in, in the Liberate uh, study, so the authors uh, have considered the uh, Eurocall five-dimension questionnaire, and it will, it will allow to determine the quality adjusted adjusted life here and, and I think it's very important to, to, to be able to provide um, uh, uh, well-designed cost uh, effectiveness uh, studies uh, especially uh, when we have discussion with the uh, health uh, payers so I think that uh, we, we, we have to we, we need we need this kind of, of data uh, uh, about cost effectiveness. And then I guess I'll ask Dr. Kreiner if you wanted to comment on either of those things. I guess one now with more experience and showing positive results up to 12 months, what in your opinion would be the most appropriate primary outcomes to study as we balance looking at spirometry versus patient-centered primary outcomes? And then if you wanted to address the, uh, the cost of effectiveness concerns also raised appropriately by Dr. Desley. Yeah, those are all great points that Gaetan um, identified. I think of all the things that we do, the importance of this type of therapy in patients with emphysema is that we're 
improving their quality of life by palliating the severe dyspnea that comes with hyperinflation. And that is much more important, that patient-centered outcome and alleviation of dyspnea that allows patients to have a better quality of life in a disease that's not only severe but is somewhat progressive in all patients. So I do think that that should be the center point of how we treat patients overall. Um, the cost effectiveness is a great question, and I think there's a glimpse of what we have in Liberate that may show where the cost effectiveness will become most robust in the future with follow-up of these, this patient cohort and others for a prolonged period of time. We had separated out the um, follow-up phase from the periprocedural phase up to 45 days, and then 45 days out to 365 days. And when you look at the differences, like any procedure or intervention, you have a spike up in exacerbations and complications around that. We talked about pneumothorax and all. But if you look at the 45 to 365 days, just like we saw with lung volume reduction surgery, we see a reduction in exacerbations. That was a trend with the clinical adjudicated um, uh, exacerbations in our study, but we also saw a statistically significant reduction in the episodes of respiratory failure. I think if we follow the cohort out longer, and like has been shown with lung volume reduction surgery, there's people that benefit from exacerbation reduction and respiratory failure and hopefully hospitalization that the in this patient group, reducing hospitalization and improving hospitalization-free survival potentially could be a strong economic benefit as well as an important clinical meaningful benefit for patients. Uh, I think that's a great point. And, you know, going back to our listeners, recognizing these are patients with, uh, you know, FEV1s, I think was it 28% predicted uh, on enrollment. So these are the patients who often will present clinically with hospitalizations for COPD exacerbations and uh, are at high risk to develop respiratory failure, as Dr. Kreiner said. Um, I want to sort of, as we get down to the last few minutes of the podcast, talk about kind of where we are across the globe. And I'd like to start with Dr. Desley. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand it that um, endobronchial valves have been improved for clinical use in emphysema in some parts of Europe. Um, and I was wondering, based on you know, your clinical experience and, and the guidance that has been provided, when clinicians are thinking about this going forward, what's a reasonable pathway for them uh, to think about who would be an uh, appropriate patient or appropriate time in that patient's course to refer them um, for endobronchial valve placement? Yes, you're right. Some, some, uh, so the, the valves are approved for clinical use in, in, in some countries in Europe. Um, I work in France, and, and, and the, the, the discussion is, is still ongoing with uh, the health uh, authority, uh, and specifically based on the reimbursement of, uh, of this uh, technique. But just to, to follow up with, with your question, so as a clinician, I think that the patient uh, who may you know, be referred are definitely patients with severe emphysema and hyperinflation, definitely. The second point is to make sure that the, the, the medical management of, of this patient is optimal before we, we consider the, this kind of technique. So it has to be optimal for the lung disease, but it it is very important also to consider the comorbidities and especially the, the cardiovascular comorbidities. So it's uh, really a multidisciplinary um, 
assessment of, of the patient that we need before we consider the, these techniques. And the third point I, I'd like to mention is, is it's a very important to have a discussion with, with the patient. What, what, what does, a, does the patient ask for? If, we, if the patient asks ask for more, uh, saying, okay, I, I would like to, to get, let's say, a better treatment for better quality of life, exercise improvement if, if possible, and we have to, to clearly explain to, to the patient the, 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 the result that we, we can have with this technique and uh, also uh, uh, to explain the, the, the safety issues uh, and especially for VAL, the, the pneumothorax, probably in, so in some patients, secondary uh, bronchoscopic procedures that we may have to do. And that's clearly a discussion with, with the, 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 the patient with the, based on the risk and, and benefits uh, of this kind of technique. Technique, but uh, I think that yes, CV and FISEMA, opti optimal management of the patient, and for sure, smoking cessation is the first one to, to, to get, and comorbidities, and after that, just to, to present clearly the, the result that, that we get. And the, I think probably the most important thing is probably this multidisciplinary approach, and uh, as uh, uh, mentioned by, by Jerry, I think uh, uh, a very rigorous uh, assessment of uh, the CT scan of the pulmonary function test, and uh, I think that uh, that's not a decision that, that, that should be uh, uh, taken by only one physician. It's uh, really a, a team you know, discussion that we, we, we need to have on the case of, of, of the patient. I think those are great points. And then I'd ask Dr. Kreiner a similar question. So, you know, for our listeners in the U.S., what is the current state uh, status of the FDA um, approval of application for, for endobronchial valves? And uh, do you have anything to add to what Dr. Deathly was saying in terms of who the patients who might benefit and, and process-wise of, um, of, uh, of referring them to uh, for endobronchial valves? Yes, thanks, uh, Nitin. Uh, the the FDA is currently reviewing uh, endobronchial valve PMAs, so it's not approved therapy in the United States at this time. Hopefully, the decisions that they render will be positive, and this will join um, other therapies that we can provide and offer to our patients, but at the current time, they're not available. I think, though, the importance is, is to recognize the uh, implications of hyperinflation and how it impacts impacts our patient population in terms of symptom burden and uh, their quality of life. Um, lung volume reduction surgery is approved therapy. However, it's not frequently used in the United States at this time, probably underutilized. So I think clinicians should always keep in their mind when they see a patient how much of the symptoms that the patient has is related to hyperinflation. Make sure that they're maximally medically treated in terms of bronchodilators or supplemental oxygen or rehabilitation, all of which have been shown to improve hyperinflation to some degree in, in this patient population. And then in appropriate patients, are they candidates to consider for lung reduction um, surgery and send them to an appropriate center for further um, evaluation, but hopefully that we'll have bronchoscopic approaches that uh, have the opportunity to treat patients in a less invasive way and afford uh, the same kind of clinical benefit from providing them a therapy that uh, lessens their degree of hyperinflation. Thank you for that, Dr. Kreiner. And I want to close asking you both kind of in the, the, the wrap-up of, of where we go from here. 
And I'll ask first you, Dr. Desley. I think we've talked about a lot of this during the, the podcast, but if you could pick one thing where you think this is the next important uh, thing uh, or question that must be resolved related to endobronchial valve therapy and, and how it should be studied. Oh, yes. In my opinion, I, I think that the next step is definitely to, to be able to translate uh, this result in, in routine clinical practice. And as mentioned by uh, Jerry before, so I, I hope that we will have uh, access to, 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 to this technique. And if we have access to this technique, I think we, we, we have to make sure that uh, uh, in routine clinical practice, we are very rigorous uh, in the way we select the patients, uh, as uh, it has been discussed before. Uh, after that, I think we, we have to make sure that the level of the expertise of the team performing these procedures um, is, uh, is good enough to, especially to manage complications. And I think this team have to be able to manage, for example, pneumothorax uh, easily. And we have to, to show that that uh, in routine clinical practice, the, the safety is, uh, is okay. And the third thing, and as we mentioned before, the, the, the follow-up of the patient. So the, the, the next days uh, after the, the procedure uh, are critical, and, and definitely we, we, we need to, to, to make sure that the, the patients um, are uh, included in, in a registry in this routine clinical practice just to, to make sure that we, we get some uh, uh, good uh, uh, assessment of, of, of the safety and efficacy of this treatment in, in a routine uh, clinical practice. And then I'll ask Dr. Kreiner to close. I, actually, if you, you could follow up, I don't know if you're aware of any, any registry uh, data being collected for these patients, and what do you feel sort of the next important step uh, that must uh, that must occur, and um, maybe you're already working on that to determine the appropriate uh, fit place for endobronchial valve therapy in our in our COPD patients with hyperinflation. Yes, thanks, Nitin. Uh, Gaetan uh, has it right. I mean, um, efficacy trials to show that they're effectiveness in a population. That's the next important step. Would be if it's approved in the U.S. translating transitioning this into the clinical practice would have to show that it's as effective as we showed, but it's safe, and I think the field needs to make this even safer therapy in terms of managing complications and improving patient outcomes. But I think the next step is patients who were studied in our, our patient group um, really is only a third of the patient population that really has severe hyperinflation, people that are collateral ventilation negative or people patients with uh, fissure uh, integrity that's a, a, at a high degree. The broader patient population are those with non-intact fissures, and that's about 70% of the hyperinflated patient population. Having therapies that are immune to the presence of fissure integrity or collateral ventilation is really what's needed to treat our patient population uh, across the board. So that's where I think the field also needs to focus on. Uh, patients that are hyperinflated, regardless of their anatomy to see if we can afford them appropriate treatment to improve their outcome. Well, I think that's a great place to close. Um, I really wanted to thank Dr. Kreiner and Dr. Desley for a great discussion. Uh, to our listeners, you'll find Dr. Kreiner's paper and Dr. Desley's editorial. Right now, you can find them at atsjournals.org. And in print, you'll find them in an upcoming issue of the journal. 
Please subscribe to our Out of the Blue podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'm Nitin Seem for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.